like my slide. There we go. That's better. All right. So uh, we're moving on into Revelation. Last week we, we kind of went through the entirety of chapter 4. And chapter 4, uh, the big idea behind this whole thing was, was pretty straightforward. Nope, that's not it. That's it. Um, the idea of worship, really, that's what that whole chapter was primarily about, if not solely about, was this idea of worship, that you have these beings in heaven, the, the four creatures and the 24 elders, worshiping God continuously. And, and all of the, I mean, just so there was this constant worship. And so we just talked about how important worship is. You know, and if we really want you know, the spirit of God to be a part of our service, then worship has got to be of prime uh, importance. And so just a couple of other insights that, that came out of that. Uh, the idea that um, it's, God is the only one who's really worthy of worship, right? There's a lot of other things that we might worship, that we're tempted to worship, and that we sometimes do worship. But that's false worship. Right? It's God alone that is truly worthy of it. And to sort of build on that point, that when we worship, it's got to be God-centered. It's not about us. Worship isn't about us. Worship isn't about whether we like the music or don't like the music or like that song or think it should be this or that. It's about God. And so you can truly worship regardless of what the external circumstances are if you're really focused on, on God. Um, the idea that worship can change us. You know, if we will really worship, then that, um, that affects a change in us. And, and John uh, said something to me after the service last week. He said, um, you know, worship of other things can change us too. And I think that's true. And that's why it's so important that we worship the right thing. Because we can get way off course if we start worshiping the stuff of this world. Um, and then finally, the idea that you know, we can overcome if we have a clear vision of the realities of heaven. So if we really know where we're going, then what's happening here is of less importance. I won't say it's insignificant. I won't say it's not hard. That's why the, the overall message to the seven churches kept being persevere, persevere, persevere. Right? It's not supposed to be a picnic or easy. But we have the ability to persevere when we know that there's something greater waiting for us. All right. So that was chapter 4. So now we're going to get into chapter 5. And so chapter 5 kind of sort of continues this whole idea of this throne room vision that started in chapter 4. And so following you know, this, this idea of, of worship, the scene is now going to shift a little bit from God the sovereign creator, to Jesus as the lamb, the redeemer. And so as John is, is in this vision, he sees that God has something in his hand, and it's a scroll. And all of a sudden, all of these heavenly worshipers fall silent, and this one mighty angel asks, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And that really brings us to a really critical point in this whole drama. And so John is really there almost as a representative 
of humanity's helplessness, right? We're helpless without a Savior. And so as John's watching and he's waiting and he sees or he hears nothing, and he just he starts to weep because there's this hopelessness that there's no one who's worthy to open this. And then all of a sudden, the scene shifts. And the despair that John is feeling gives way to this good news of a messianic conqueror. There is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And so John sees this once slaughtered but now living lamb, full of strength and the spirit, and he's standing at the center of the throne. And so the passage then is going to close as the Lamb is taking the scroll from the right hand of God. So now let's read. We're in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. So uh, if you want to follow along, we'll have the words up here, or you can open your Bibles. So Revelation 5, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. So let's dig into this a bit. So we'll kind of back up and go with verse 1. And so this idea of the scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. Now there's a, the background for this passage is a, a verse from Ezekiel, as you have found that a lot of what we look at in Revelation has a background in Ezekiel. Most of it has a background in the Old Testament, but a lot of it does come from Ezekiel. And so in this verse, it's actually Ezekiel 2, 9, and 10. And it says, Then I looked, and I saw a hand stretched out to me, and it was a scroll, which he unrolled before me. On both sides of it were written words of lament and mourning and woe. And so um, there was a theologian named Theodore Zahn who observed that um, the seven seals indicate that this is a testament. In other words, like a last will and testament. Um, and that's really not the entire explanation for it, but it's, it's a very important piece to understand what this really is. And so let me read a little bit of the background that he wrote. He says, the word biblion, which means book in Greek, itself permits of many interpretations, but for the readers of that time, it was designated by the seven seals on its back beyond possibility of mistake. Um, just as in Germany, before the introduction of money orders, 
Everybody knew that a letter sealed with five seals contained money. Now, isn't that funny? That you would actually advertise that this letter has money in it? That you actually could advertise that the letter has money in it? But that's what they did. If, they were, if there were seven seals on the back, then it indicated that it was money. Now, this was, again, before money orders. And so, um, in the same way, most even the most simple member of these churches in Asia would understand or know that a biblion or a text that was made fast with seven seals was a testament or, or, or a, a will, if you will. It says, when a testator dies, the testament is brought forward and when possible opened in the presence of the seven witnesses who sealed it. And so at that point it was unsealed, read aloud, and executed. This document with seven seals is the symbol of the promise of a future kingdom. The disposition long ago occurred and was documented and sealed, but it was not yet carried out. So what this is saying is this was God's plan from the beginning, right? It was written down, sealed up until the time that it could be opened. And so it really speaks to this idea that, you know, God knows the future. God has all this under control. And it's just waiting for the appointed time. Now, another interesting point of this was that the scroll had writing on it on both the front and the back. And if you were a Christian reader of that day, you would immediately understand the significance of that description because it's based on what? What other thing do we know of in the Bible that was written on both sides? The Ten Commandments. Very good, Darlene. Gold star for Darlene. Extra brownie at the picnic. <laughs> and so these two tablets of the testimony, the Old Testimony, were inscribed on both the front and the back. And so just as these Ten Commandments represented the Old Covenant, right, the Old Covenant with God, the one that he made with Israel, this scroll in Revelation is really nothing less than the testament of the resurrected and ascended Christ, the New Covenant. All right, so let's move on. Verses three and four. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy. And so what John is describing here is it's sort of like the entire universe is hanging in the balance. And there's this search for someone who's capable of opening this, of looking at it, of breaking the seals and unfolding the final stages of God's plan for humanity. And so, as I said earlier, at this point in the text, there's no one found. No one is stepping forward. No one's raising their hand. And, and John is just weeping uncontrollably because he understands the implications of this. And so, you know, it's the mere thought that, you know, God has this plan to bring deliverance and restoration and justice and victory, and that none of that is going to be realized if this can't be opened. Nobody there is worthy to fulfill the requirements of the new covenant. There were previous mediators. There was Adam and Moses and David 
and all of the rest, and they had all proved inadequate for the task. Nobody could take away sin and death because everyone has sinned and has already fallen short of the glory of God. The sacrifice of animals, which was the representation of this, really couldn't take away sin. It was a, it was a symbol, it was a, a, a practice that they had, but it wasn't, it was really all that they had. Even the high priest who offered up this sacrifice couldn't do it. <coughs> he was a sinner himself. Beset with weaknesses. And he would die, and he would then have to be replaced. Nobody could be found who could guarantee something better. And so, there's no one who is worthy to act on behalf of both God and man to ratify this. And so, to John, it looks like that this is it. This is the end. There's no one who is going to be able to open this, and so the book remains locked. But verse 5 comes along. And this elder says, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And so, in the midst of all of this unrestrained mourning that John is going through, he's comforted by this elder that comes to him and says, well, it's okay. You don't have to weep. Look, there's someone who's worthy. And so he describes Jesus, the one he sees, the worthy one. And he uses two very important messianic titles to do so. And so the first one is this idea of the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's what he calls Jesus. And this refers back to a blessing that Jacob said over his son that identified the tribe of Judah as the royal line. And it signifies Jesus' power and strength as a mighty warrior and ruler. I think I have this. It's Genesis 49, 9 and 10. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So this is one of those prophetic images or, or um, sayings that we find in the Old Testament that is prophesying to the coming of the Messiah. And so that's why he's referred to here as the lion from the tribe of Judah. <clears throat> and then he also calls him something very interesting. He's, he calls him the root of David. Now, this is echoing the promise of Isaiah that the ideal ruler would come from the root of Jesse. Now, Jesse was King David's father. So if you think of this, it's like, well, then that doesn't really line up because then how could he come from the root of Jesse and also the root of David? Because if Jesse's David's father, that doesn't really 
make a lot of sense. So that it's really coming from two passages that are very closely related in Isaiah. You have Isaiah 11.10, which says, In that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Well, this is describing the Messiah. But ten verses earlier it says this, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. So the question then is, okay, well then, how can the Messiah be both? How can he be both the root and the branch of Jesse? Well, that was a mystery that the uh, scholars of that time puzzled over until it was fulfilled in Jesus. Because on the basis of Isaiah 11.10, we understand that the root or the ancestor of Jesse is also the root or the ancestor of David. And so these two titles of Jesus then point to, they point us in direction of both his deity as the ultimate and divine source of David and his humanity as the royal lion that comes out of the tribe of Judah. And so John need not weep because Jesus is this long-expected royal Messiah. And he is able to open the scroll and defeat the powers of evil. Jesus alone can fulfill God's plan because he's triumphed. And it's the same word used throughout the book of Revelation for overcome or conquer or be victorious. Those words are all somewhat synonymous. And his worthiness results from his sacrifice on the cross. His ability to carry this out flows out of his victorious death and resurrection. Verse 6, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Now, somewhat surprisingly, when John turns to look at this conquering lion, he sees a lamb standing as if slain. And this term for lamb is used 28 different times in the book of Revelation, and it always refers to Christ, and it sort of combines this image of the Passover lamb from Exodus with the idea of the suffering servant lamb which is present in the book of Isaiah. So we ask, well, in what sense is Jesus a lamb? Well, he conquered not by using the power or the force of a lion, but by dying as the Passover lamb. It's not referring to Jesus and his nature. He's not lamb-like in the sense of being gentle or sweet or mild, as some people will falsely understand this text. See, the great victory that he had over the forces of evil had already occurred at the cross and through the resurrection. And now, 
the idea is that he's indeed slain, but resurrected and alive. And he's standing at the center of the throne. And what does that image give us? That image gives us this idea that there is this unique relationship with Jesus because he's standing on God's throne. There's only one throne of God in Revelation and it's shared with the Lamb. The Lamb had seven eyes, and seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now the horns are more than likely symbolic of power and strength. Um, but if you really know your Bible, then this image could perhaps have jogged your memory if you recall that there were seven ram's horns that were used to herald the judgment that God has on its enemies um, in the historic battle of Jericho. Seven horns were, were blown. And sort of in the same way, the great sacrificial lamb to whom all of the other sacrifices pointed now provides power and strength and victory. It's the definitive victory of Christ that guarantees all of the progressive victories that will come from it in the ultimate victory of all the territory that's assigned to the church. Now this lamb also has seven eyes which could represent wisdom and insight, but they're explicitly defined here. They're referred to as the seven spirits of God. And I think maybe to understand this, we go back to Genesis 1, which is where we first see the mention of the Holy Spirit hovering over the earth, brooding over it, forming and filling it, calling forth life. And as this creation story progresses, the Spirit performs seven acts of seeing. The sevenfold Spirit's eyes, if you will. Seven times we are told that God saw that it was good. And so as God is creating his world, he's also judging it, assessing it, approving it. Until the final climactic judgment was made as the prelude to the beginning of the seventh day. <clears throat> and so here we have in Revelation that Jesus is presented as the center of history. The overcomer who receives the new covenant for men. And he's seen to be both the creator and the judge. And he has fullness of knowledge through his immeasurable possession of the seeing and discerning spirit. And so we find that his understanding of creation and of history originates not from history itself, but from the fact that he's both the creator and the redeemer of the world. And so on the basis of his person, his work, and his exalted position as savior and world ruler, Jesus ascends to heaven, steps forward to the throne of his father, and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. 
Well, one of the insights that we can draw from this is that, no, that's not it. Is that Revelation 5 really echoes this statement uh, in John 10.30 that says, I and the Father are one. See, the Lamb's position in the, as, as being at the center of the throne is his worthiness, shows his worthiness to take up the scroll from his Father and receive worship throughout the second half of, of this chapter. And all of this sort of points to this oneness of God. And so for these early Christians who, remember, were committed monotheists, right? They believed in one God. And the fact that they worshipped Jesus alongside God can only mean that they regarded Jesus as God, as one who shared in God's nature and glory. The passage, I think, also communicates uh, another important insight, and that is that victory often comes through sacrifice. In 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, it sort of sums up this whole climax of human history. That Jesus, who's this messianic warrior, came to give himself as a sacrifice for sins through his death on the cross. So we learn that the lion is a lamb. The slaughtered lamb is alive by virtue of his resurrection. And now stands exalted at the center of the throne of God, ready to carry out his heavenly ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. So a couple of things that I think we can sort of apply this to. The first is this idea that human beings are helpless without a savior. And that, you know, John's weeping in this chapter, I think really can reflect, it's kind of a universal response, really of people who finally realize that they can't save themselves. That no matter what kind of sin they're in the midst of, that you, you can't deliver yourself from it. And if the gospel is going to have any kind of good news impact, then people need to realize this. That's the good news, right? That there is someone who can get us out of the mess that we're in. Let's do a quick sort of exercise in imagination. So if I, how would you feel if, if this statement, how would you feel if I told you that there was no victory over death, no end to pain and suffering, no power to defeat Satan, no end to, to destructive addictions and so on? Now see, if you were to hold to the, the world view of the Enlightenment, now that says that human beings made the scroll and we're developing ways to open it. If you believe in postmodernism, well, then in that case you, just, you deny that, that such a scroll even exists. There's no grand story that offers life and hope. And so John in this text is identifying with all of humanity and he's asking this universal question. Is there a God 
And will he come to our rescue? And so in Jesus, the answer is clearly yes. Yes. Second, God is not passively sitting on his throne while his people suffer under the dictatorship of evil powers. He's actively executing this plan. See, the very existence that there is a scroll reassures us that God does have a plan. God is on his throne, the plan's in his right hand, and it's going to be opened. He's not sitting, sitting idly by just enjoying watching all of us suffer through life with all of the mess that we have to deal with. And see, if, if you've grown up or if you've been taught that there is this, I guess it's kind of a, a, a futuristic version of redemption, that um, everything is going to be reconciled, but not until the very end right? Well, you need to be reminded that all that's already been accomplished through Jesus. Yes, he will consummate his victory over evil at the second coming, and yes, there are real battles that still have to be fought, but the war has been won. One individual said it like this, the great victory over Satan has already occurred. The cross is the central point of history, and the final battle of Armageddon is the culmination of a victory already won. In actuality, Armageddon is more Satan's final act of defiance than the final victory of Christ. The victory of Christ is at the cross. And then finally, Jesus alone proves worthy of accomplishing God's plan. Now there's a, an astrophysicist named Michael Hart, and he wrote a book. And the book is called The 100. And in this book he asks a question. Who are the 100 most influential people in history? So of all the human beings who have ever lived, who has had the deepest impact on our lives? Some of the folks that were on the list, he includes Sigmund Freud, who's the originator of psychoanalysis. Now, you may or may not like or even agree with Freud's theories, but in what he did, he opened up this whole field of psychology. Um, and people still use words that he's coined, like ego and Oedipus complex and death wish. Those are all words that were Freud's. And we still use those today. He also had uh, Louis Pasteur on the list. And uh, according to Hart, it was Pasteur who issued, issued us into, ushered us, not issued, ushered us into the realm of modern medicine. Okay? So it was Pasteur who convinced the scientific community that there were these tiny little things that you couldn't see called germs. And it was germs that caused a lot of the disease. I don't know if it's widely known, but I mean, physicians weren't all that concerned with cleanliness and disinfecting and all that until Louis came up with this idea of germs. And so that's why so many people died in hospitals. They would get infected and they would die. Uh, 
I mean, you stress washing your hands before you eat. Well, washing your hands before surgery is generally thought now to be a pretty good idea, but that wasn't necessarily the case back then. The other cool thing that Pasteur did was he actually figured out how to inoculate human beings so that they wouldn't get these diseases. And really, the fact that you're here and you're alive and, and well is probably owed in some measure to this French biologist and chemist 150 years ago. But the thing that really made this book interesting and uh, popular was that Michael Hart had the chutzpah to actually rank the top 100 world changers. So think of this sort of as the NCAA playoffs <coughs> of greatness. So what do you think he did with Jesus? Well, Jesus did make the list. He said that Jesus was the inspiration for the most influential religion in history. He wrote that Jesus had an extraordinarily impressive personality. It's a really nice compliment. So where do you think Jesus was on the list? Well, based on Jesus' impressive influence throughout history, he ranked Jesus as the third most influential person in history, right after Muhammad and the scientist Isaac Newton, who incidentally was also a Christian. Now, what Hart was attempting to do was to answer a question that every single one of us has to answer. What will you make of Jesus? Where will you rank Jesus? Is he in your top 100? Did he make the top 10? Is he number one? Or does Jesus actually belong to his own list? the one that's called Lord and Master and Savior of my life. See, the way that you answer that question is going to affect everything else in your life. It is the critical question that you have to answer. But as you contemplate this and you think about, well, how, how do I rank Jesus? And I, I mean, I don't think it's a safe bet to say that every Christian puts Jesus number one on their list. Heresy. No, I'm just being honest. I can look around. Not necessarily here, but I just look at the Christian church as a whole. It's pretty obvious. Not everybody has Jesus number one. But as we think about this, and you think for yourself, well, is that really where I have Jesus in my life? I think it's important that we sort of think about what Revelation has to say about him. That it's Jesus and Jesus alone who is worthy to take the scroll from God's right hand and open it. Not Muhammad. Not Isaac Newton.
the reason for his worthiness is alluded to in verse 6. The lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. His worthiness rests in his crucifixion and his resurrection. I'm going to continue our art study now. We looked at a painting a couple of weeks ago. Today, this one ought to be familiar to, to almost everybody. This is The Last Supper, as painted by Leonardo da Vinci. Now, it's an outstanding work of art. There's no question about that. It's not historically accurate, because there were no tables, really, in those days. They would have sat reclining around a very low table instead of sitting on chairs, as this uh, portrays. But there are many details of this painting that are worth uh, our attention. The humanity of Jesus' disciples, the drama that's depicted in this moment, the way da Vinci depicts Judas, just a couple of the things that are worth describing here. But there's one thing that I think stands out above all the others, and that's the fact that da Vinci composed this work with outstanding technical perspective, so that the head of Jesus is at the very center of the work. The placement of the disciples, the surrounding architecture, even the lighting are meant to focus our eyes on Jesus. And very similarly, like a master artist, God's composed our universal history to focus our eyes on one thing, and that's on Jesus and his cross and his resurrection. Because it's only him that has the, the authority to carry out God's plan. We've got to keep Jesus in his rightful place. It's hard sometimes because as someone in service in the clergy, so to speak, we can get put on pedestals. I don't think you all do that, but it can happen in churches that look upon their clergy with some degree of awe and reverence. Maybe to the point of replacing God rather than representing God. And we need to be mindful of that because it's only Jesus that is worthy of representing God of having the authority to carry out his plan. And so, <clears throat> the big idea, the final thought here, is that it's Jesus, the crucified and resurrection lion lamb, is worthy to carry out God's plan of redemption and judgment for the world. I'd like to ask the worship team to, uh, to come forward. Think about that question this week. I think it's a question that we ought to ask ourselves from time to time. Where is Jesus? How do I rank Jesus in my life? I think we all, if we were asked that question, maybe depending on who's asking, 
But we would all like to think that we would say, well, he's number one. It's at the top of my list. Okay. Do you live like that? Is that the way you conduct yourself to your neighbors? Is that the way that you conduct yourself at work? Is that the way that you base all of your interpersonal relationships? See, if those things don't all line up, then I think you could make a strong case for saying that, well, maybe Jesus is not at the top of my list. Now, I don't, I don't think anyone expects us to be perfect, right? We're going to slip. But I think if we can ask ourselves that question periodically, it sort of serves as a compass to help us right ourselves and to get back heading in the direction that we know we're supposed to be in, with Jesus at the top of our list. So we're going to have our, our time of communion now. Um, And so as you come, ponder that question. Ask God if he thinks you have Jesus at the top of your list. He'll answer you. It's one of those questions that you better not ask if you don't want to hear the truth because God will answer that one. <laughs> All right, well, let's pray. Father, I thank you for, uh, for this part of your holy word that reminds us that Jesus and Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll and to, to carry out your plan for the ultimate redemption. We're thankful that he has already won the victory. And it is that sacrifice that we recall when we come to the table for communion. And so we do recall that on the night on which Jesus was to be betrayed, he took bread and he thanked you, thanked his father. And then he gave it to his disciples and he said, take this all of you and eat for this is my body given for you for the forgiveness of your sins. And then further along in the meal, he took the cup and again, he thanked his father. And again, he shared this with his disciples. And he said, take this all of you and drink, for this is the cup of my blood, the new and everlasting covenant, blood that was shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of your sins. So whenever you eat of this bread or drink of this cup, do so and remember me. And so, Father, we do ask that in this time we remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus. We ask that you would make this simple meal to be for us 
your body and your blood. We ask you to consecrate these elements of bread and cup now in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And above all, we give you thank you and pray, thanks and praise for what it accomplished and what it allows, the freedom that it allows us to have today. Amen. Mike and Maggie, would you come? And John and Harry, would you